Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for November 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the last month's literature and see what caught our eye. So let's start off with the New England Journal of Medicine early versus on-demand nasoenteric tube feeding in acute pancreatitis. So this is from the Dutch Pancreatitis Study Group. Now, feeding in pancreatitis is an evolving science with a gradual shift from parenteral nutrition to earlier enteral nutrition. On the basis of previous studies and meta-analyses reporting reduced infectious complications and mortality with early EN, that is less than 36 hours after admission or within 48 hours, the American and European nutritional societies recommend early nasoenteric feeding in all patients with severe pancreatitis. However, gastroenterology and pancreatic societies state that regardless of disease severity, enteral feeding is indicated when patients are not able to tolerate oral diet for up to seven days. Now that's a decision that may take three to four days to make, so we've got some uncertainty there. So this study, the Python trial, pancreatitis versus early compared with selective delayed start of enteral feeding, is a Dutch multi-center RCT that aimed to address this question by enrolling 208 patients with acute pancreatitis to early enteral nutrition, which was commenced via a nasojejunal tube within 24 hours, versus on-demand enteral nutrition. Now on-demand was oral diet at 72 hours and they got enteral nutrition only if they couldn't tolerate oral diet at 72 hours. So they report the groups were similar at baseline and only 18% ended up in ICU. So this was acute pancreatitis but it wasn't all the most severe pancreatitis. The early group started feeding at a median of 8 hours after randomization and 23 hours after presentation to ED compared to 64 hours and 72 hours so the treatment was delivered as planned. There was no significant difference in the primary endpoint a composite of major infection or death so in the early group it was 30% in the on-demand group 27% and that's a relative risk of 1.07 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.79 to 1.44. And there was no difference in the secondary endpoints, including in the relatively small ICU group as a subgroup. So in summary, this study of early versus on-demand or delayed enteral nutrition suggests that there is no difference in safety or outcomes between the two arguably making the effort and cost of early nasojejunal placement difficult to justify. Now the authors point out the trial was not powered to exclude a substantial benefit of early feeding, so that has to be kept in mind. The next study is a procalcitonin study. So this is procalcitonin algorithm in critically ill adults with undifferentiated infection or suspected sepsis, a randomized controlled trial published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine from the ANZIX CTG group. More than 70% of ICU patients 
receive antibiotics. The separation of bacterial infection, viral infection and inflammation is difficult and an algorithm that helped separate these out to limit antibiotic use to patients that would benefit would be valuable. So this is the ProGuard study, a prospective single-blinded RCT conducted in 11 Australian ICUs enrolling adult patients in ICU for less than 72 hours who were receiving parenteral or enteral antibiotics with two or more SERS criteria and were expected to remain in ICU for greater than 24 hours. So the study involved in, in both arms procalcitonin levels were measured daily in all patients and antibiotic prescription was in accordance with Australian antibiotic therapeutic guidelines and local antimicrobial stewardship programs. So the PCT group were made aware of the daily PCT and antibiotic decisions were guided by a PCT algorithm. The algorithm recommended that antibiotics be ceased if initial or any subsequent PCT was negative, which is defined as a level less than 0.1 nanogram per mil, if the initial or any subsequent PCT was borderline 0.1 to 0.25 nanograms per mil and infection considered highly unlikely, or 3 if subsequent PCT level declined more than 90% from baseline. They also assessed antibiotic appropriateness and or adequacy of source control if the PCT level at 48 hours was greater than 70% of the baseline value. The standard group were not aware of PCT level and just made decisions based on antibiotic stewardship programs. The study size was based on a median baseline antibiotic exposure of 9 plus or minus 6 days and required 165 patients per group for 90% power to detect a 25% reduction in antibiotic duration. The results? Well, baseline variables were the same. 87 to 89% had a PCT greater than 0.25 nanogram per mil. Median baseline wasn't statistically significant between the two. And 61.4% had confirmed infections. The primary outcome, which was time to antibiotic cessation at 28 days, hospital discharge or death, whichever came first, was 9 days in the PCT group versus 11 days in the standard therapy group. A p-value of 0.58, unadjusted hazard ratio of 1.06 with confidence intervals of 0.85 to 1.33 and no difference after adjustment. There was no significant difference in antibiotic free days at 28 days, antibiotic daily defined doses, or any secondary outcomes. The baseline PCT was not predictive of mortality, although the decline in PCT over the first 72 hours was, and this result remained significant for hospital and 90-day mortality after adjustment for confounders. So, in a group of patients with suspected infection and sepsis criteria who are receiving antibiotics, the use of PCT levels in this algorithm was not associated with reduction in antibiotic use or better outcomes. How should we interpret this?
Well, PCT-based algorithms do not offer benefits over an antibiotic stewardship program in critically ill patients, or this PCT-based algorithm does not offer benefits, but a different algorithm might. After a decade of research, it is still not clear if and how PCT can be of real benefit. The relationship of PCT over 72 hours and associated outcomes does raise the possibility of PCT as a guide to treatment efficacy, but it looks like we're still searching for answers. Let's move on to JAMA and the POISE-2 investigators. So perioperative aspirin and clonidine and risk of acute injury, a randomised clinical trial. So the POISE-2 trial was a 2 by 2 factorial trial that randomised 10,010 patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery to aspirin versus placebo and clonidine versus placebo. In March 2014, the aspirin results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, reporting perioperative aspirin did not improve outcomes and resulted in more bleeding in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery who are considered to be at risk of vascular complications. This paper, published in JAMA, investigates whether perioperative aspirin or clonidine versus placebo alter the risk of post-operative or perioperative acute kidney injury, which is defined as an increase in serum creatinine concentration from the preoperative concentration by either increase of 0.3 or greater within 48 hours of surgery or an increase of 50% or greater within seven days of surgery. The rationale for this subgroup is that approximately 10% of patients that undergo major non-cardiac surgery experience acute kidney injury, with half a percent receiving dilatic therapy. 88 of the 135 POISE-2 sites agreed to participate in the AKI substudy with 6,905 patients included. They report that aspirin versus placebo did not alter acute kidney injury risk or secondary definitions of acute kidney injury. Clonidine versus placebo resulted in an increased stage 3 acute kidney injury, 1.4 versus 0.8%, and there was no difference in any other group. There was no difference in subgroups with pre-specified chronic renal disease, and post-hoc analysis found the clonidine group were less likely to receive ACE inhibitors during the first three days post-operatively and had more hypotension, which was associated with a greater risk of acute kidney injury. So my take is that overall aspirin is neither good nor bad at preventing acute kidney injury. Clonidine is not good, but may lead to an increase in stage 3 acute kidney injury and may prevent the use of ACE inhibitors post-op and may result in hypotension that leads to acute kidney injury. So it's hard to justify any of them. Okay, moving on back to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and we've got the Association of Post-Discharge Rehabilitation with Mortality in Intensive Care Unit Survivors of Sepsis. So the incidence of sepsis is increasing while the mortality for sepsis is decreasing, resulting in more survivors of critical illness and sepsis and increasing concerns about the quality of survival. There is active debate about how to improve quality of life after ICU, 
with clinical trials producing conflicting results regarding the efficacy of post-discharge rehab. This nationwide, population-based, propensity score-matched cohort study conducted in Taiwan using the National Health Insurance Research Database matched 15,535 ICU patients that survived sepsis, that was ICD-9 coding, and received rehab within three months after discharge to an equal number of propensity scored matched controls that survived sepsis and did not receive rehab. To be eligible for inclusion in the study, the patients had to survive to 90 days post-discharge, so they had to be able to receive rehab in the first three months. The endpoint was 10-year mortality. The study period was 2000 to 2009. In Taiwan, the rehab program includes physical, occupational, speech therapists, social workers and athletics trainers. One rehab course consists of six sessions in a month, followed by a transition to a structured home-based program. The high-dimensional propensity score algorithm was developed using thousands of variables at the drug, diagnostic and procedural levels for the periods of 180 days before hospitalisation for sepsis, during hospitalisation and at the demographic level according to variables potential to cause bias in the estimation of exposure outcome associations. They selected the 500 empirical variables most likely to cause bias for inclusion in the propensity score model and included covariates strongly associated with mortality, age, sex, year and month of index date, monthly income, urbanisation, severity of illness scores, chronic comorbidity scores, etc. etc. They then used logistic regression to estimate the predicted probability of receiving post-discharge rehab followed by one-to-one -one matching using the nearest neighbour method without replacement. So that was their propensity score model. What did they find? Well, the incident rate of 10-year mortality was 20.6 per 100 person years in the rehab group and 22 per 100 person years in the control group. The Kaplan-Meier curve showing a survival benefit in the rehab cohort with lower 10-year mortality risk, 0.94, was the hazard ratio with 95% confidence intervals of 0.92 to 0.97 and this was also lower at 1, 3 and 5 years. Among patients receiving rehab, a greater frequency of rehab course was associated with lower mortality. Now subgroup analyses reveal that rehab decreased the risk of mortality in the sicker patients, uh, so higher uh, Charleston comorbidity index, longer mechanical ventilation duration, longer ICU length of stay and hospital length of stay greater than 21 days. So in summary, this very large propensity match study suggests that post-ICU rehab reduces long-term mortality with a 5.6% risk reduction over 10 years. And that this effect may be confined to the more severely ill patients. Now of course this is not a prospective RCT. They did not have information on some important confounders like obesity, smoking, alcohol and social status 
and despite the best matching, it is possible that survivors are more likely to be referred to and participate in rehab. But they do finish by suggesting an RCT of patients with ICU length of stay greater than seven days requiring 450 per arm is what's needed, that is a 900 patient study. A study published in Intensive Care Medicine, Mortality Related to After-Hours Discharge from Intensive Care in Australia and New Zealand, 2005 to 2012, from the ANZICS Adult Patient Database. So, after-hours discharge from ICU has long been identified as a predictor of adverse outcomes, including mortality and ICU readmission. Over the last decade, mortality in Australian and New Zealand ICUs has steadily decreased, although the mechanisms behind this are not clearly understood. As a result of this improvement in ICU outcome, the focus is shifting towards post-ICU outcomes. In the short term, strategies such as liaison services, rapid response teams, etc., combined with improving outcomes and a focus on reducing out-of-hours discharge, may have led to a reduction of the impact of this problem of after-hours discharge. This ANZICS APD study looked at outcomes of 109,384 patients discharged out of hours from Australia and New Zealand ICUs from 2005 to 2012. This was 15.4% of all patients. Over the time course of the study, there was no difference in the timing of ICU discharge, that is, 15% of patients get discharged out of hours in 2012 like they did in 2005. The after-hours discharge patients had a higher mortality throughout the period. It's 6.4% for out-of-hours compared to 3.6% in-hours and more readmissions. During the same period, the post-ICU mortality for all patients declined. So the after-hours patients had higher Apache 3 scores, higher predicted mortality, so perhaps it was more likely that they would have a high mortality. They were also more likely to be from metro or rural ICUs and not private ICUs. And also, patients who were discharged between 10am and 11am in the morning had the lowest mortality of all, and the highest mortality was in the early hours of the morning. So in summary, after-hours discharge from ICU remains an independent predictor of increased mortality. So why the increase in mortality, and do we need to do anything? Is it causation or association? That is, could we prevent deaths by not discharging patients at night? Or do we have a population that are more likely to die that are held on to by ICUs for as long as possible and get discharged 24-7? Does this just reflect that low-risk elective surgical patients are discharged during the day at predictable times? How do we answer this question? Well, there is some insight from this study. The most common reason for after-hours ICU discharge is emergency admission. So preventing after-hours discharge may reduce access and affect outcomes of other patients 
Although all subgroups have high mortality with after-hours discharge, there are clear imbalances with only 7-8% to 8 of cardiac surgery patients discharged out of hours, while 21% of medical admissions are post-ICU discharges. So if we were going to tackle the problem, perhaps we need to build a program that targets medical patients in ICU and their out-of-hours discharges food for thought. Again in intensive care medicine we have quality of dying in the ICU. Is it worse for patients admitted from the hospital ward compared to those admitted from the ED? So this study looks at the effect of ICU admission source on family perceptions of end-of-life care using the family satisfaction in the ICU survey and quality of dying and death questions. They prospectively evaluated 1,500 patients and families from 15 hospitals in the Seattle-Tacoma region. Eligible patients were those who died in ICU after a minimum stay of 6 hours and within 30 hours of ICU discharge and had a chronic illness and utilised life-sustaining measures. They report that 31% of patients were admitted from the ward and 69% from ED. Ward patients had a longer ICU length of stay, 7.4 compared to 5.2 days, and were less likely to have a DNR order, so 3% versus 24%. The mean patient age was 70.4 years and the mean family member age was 58 years. 581 families were returned their surveys and 610 nurses completed a survey. There was a significant association between ICU admission source and family rating of satisfaction with care and quality of dying and of ICU care. 23% of patients that died had no documented evidence of family discussion within the first 72 hours of ICU admission. So, the authors discussed the association between admission source and family ratings of quality of dying and satisfaction with ICU care. That is, families were less satisfied with care if the source of admission is the hospital ward. It is possible that ward patients have more chronic illness, are more complicated, and as a result, receive less effective communication. If this is the case, it is concerning because these patients are being transferred to ICU, then dying, at least the cohort study in, in this paper and they're doing so without adequate discussion about their needs and values. It is also possible that ward-based patients' families have different preconceptions about the likely trajectory of recovery and are not ready for an ICU admission followed by death. And again, this suggests a failure to recognise high-risk patients and their families and prepare them for deterioration and death. Moving on to paediatric critical care, we have delayed antimicrobial therapy increases mortality and organ dysfunction duration in paediatric sepsis. Timely antibiotic administration in severe sepsis septic shock is associated with reduced mortality. This is accepted in adults and it's recommended in paediatric populations but the evidence is less clear. So this retrospective observational cohort study of 130 patients treated with severe sepsis and septic shock at an academic PICU in Philadelphia reported that the 
organism was 48% bacterial, 31% viral, 28% non-identified. The median age was 8 years, baseline white cells 107 49% came from the ED, and 80% had no or one comorbidity. 74% required vasopressive, 62% were ventilated. There was compliance with initial resuscitation goals in terms of blood cultures prior to antibiotics in 78%, antibiotics in less than one hour in 18%, less than three hours 50%, and an initial fluid bolus in less than one hour in 35%. They had lactate in 70% and a central line in 70%. The PICU length of stay was nine days with a mortality of 12%. The time from sepsis recognition to initial antibiotic was 140 minutes. It was shorter in ED and shorter if treated on an institutional pathway. The unadjusted odds ratio for death increased as time to initial antibiotics increased, achieving significance at 3 hours. Multivariate analysis revealed a PIM2 score was the most important confounding variable and after adjusting for this, less than 3 hours versus greater than 3 hours time to antibiotic had an odds ratio of mortality of 4.84. A propensity score for receipt of antimicrobials within 3 hours was developed and after adjustment for various confounders associated with delay, infection, PIM score, administration of antibiotics in less than three hours versus greater than three hours remained an independent risk factor for mortality with an odds ratio of 3.83. So of course this is retrospective single centre study with confounders likely to influence the effects described. Still the multivariate analysis and propensity score point to a delay in antibiotics resulting in increased mortality. In addition the study gives valuable insight into the clinical characteristics and treatment characteristics of paediatric septic shock. So to finish up we have simplified severe sepsis protocol, a randomized controlled trial of modified early goal-directed therapy in Zambia, published in Critical Care Medicine. In sub-Saharan Africa, cohort studies indicate that sepsis is the third leading cause of death among HIV-infected adults after TB and cryptococcal meningitis and the leading cause of death in hospitalized adults. The translation of sepsis protocols to sub-Saharan Africa has not been possible due to resource limitations, that is there's no central lines, no lactate to guide therapy. In addition, the generalizability of first world evidence to sub-Saharan Africa is questionable due to population and resource differences. In this pilot randomized controlled trial of patients presenting to a university hospital in Lusaka, Zambia within 24 hours of presentation and within 6 hours of sepsis criteria over a 6 month period in 2012, patients were randomized to either usual care, which was IV fluids, which are traditionally given fairly conservatively, antibiotics and the occasional use of non-concentrated dopamine or a sepsis protocol which was protocol based care for the first six hours they got initially a two litre 
ringers bolus then a further two liters over four hours titrated to jvp with the fluid stopped if respiratory deterioration occurred if the map was less than 65 after two liters of fluid dopamine was commenced and finally transfusion of whole blood was given if hemoglobin was less than seven they enrolled in 112 patients the characteristics 81% were HIV positive. They were enrolled within two and a half hours from admission. 88% had a below normal JVP. The baseline respiratory rate was 38. And 58% had a respiratory infection. The median time to first antibiotic was 1.4 hours with the most common bacteria, Staph aureus, Strep, Pneumonia and Salmonella. 60 of the 112 patients had TB. The sepsis protocol group received more fluid, 2.8 litres versus 1.6 litres, and the hospital mortality was not different between the groups, 64% in the protocol compared to 61% in usual care, and there was very little difference in the Kaplan-Meier survival curves. ICU utilisation was very low, but that's not surprising because there are 10 ICU beds for an area of 13 million people. The study was stopped prior to the scheduled interim analysis due to the observation that patients with hypoxic respiratory distress at baseline, which ended up being the group with a respiratory rate greater than 40 and SATs less than 90%, appeared to be at increased risk from the intervention. So they reviewed this group and showed that that group had a mortality of 70% in the usual care group and 100% in the protocol group. So they stopped the study. So this is a really interesting study because it describes the demographics and outcomes of a population so different to what most of us see in first world ICUs. Predominantly HIV positive, a huge amount of TB in a fairly austere environment with one ICU bed per one million people. It also adds more evidence to this idea that fluid resuscitation in this population may be harmful, particularly where there is not ready access to ventilatory support and where sepsis is more of a subacute to chronic process than we see in our populations. And it adds to the FEAST trial, which showed harm in children, and the PRISM-U, which showed benefit in Ugandan adults. So the question of how best to resuscitate sub-Saharan Africans with septic shock remains unanswered. Well, that's it for Journal Club November 2014. Come to the website and look at some of the articles we didn't talk about. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you.